So as we make our way to the end of 1 Samuel, you'll notice a stark contrast emerge. You know, we saw it in last week's text where Jonathan, the son of Saul, in contrast to his father, seeks to preserve David's life. Right, Jonathan, the obvious heir to the throne, at least in his father's eyes, offers David his help and protection to the displeasure of his father. And why? What is it that drives this father and son in these different directions? Well, if you remember from last week, after discovering that Jonathan was aiding David, Saul exploded in anger and said to his son, For as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. You see, Saul assumed that what drove him also drove his son, jealousy. Right? Saul believed the object of his heart, the kingdom, was the object of his son's heart. Right? Saul was jealous of a throne and a kingdom that didn't belong to him. Right? He was jealous of what belonged to God and what was God's to give to whomever he chose. Saul's jealousy, as I heard Mark Dever say in a sermon, was an accusation against the God who gives gifts. Right? Jealousy runs on the belief that God owes us the desires of our hearts. Right? Jealousy says to God that we have a rightful claim to what our neighbors have received from the hands of God. And for Saul, the God who gave him the throne had no right to take it away and give it to another. What happens to us when we act as if the things that we've received are due to us? You know, where are we driven when we are more committed to ourselves than to the God who is free to give and take away? You know, jealousy seems like such a small thing, probably because it is so easy to hide. A few weeks ago in, in Sunday school with the children, we were going over the Ten Commandments, and we hit that tenth one, thou shalt not covet. And none of the kids we were unfamiliar with that word covet, so I explained it to them. You know, if you ever wanted something so bad, something that someone else had received, they said, yeah? I said, that's coveting. And with a look of shock, they said, we're not allowed to do that? <laughs> right? We think that the secret sins of our hearts are contained, that they are under our control. But the truth is that jealousy is destructive. And as we see with Saul, when, when jealousy goes unconfessed, when it is continually indulged, it rules your heart. Right? And for Saul, that meant being devoted to saying the end of David. It meant the elimination of anyone who possibly stood in the way of that goal. And if you want to learn more about the depths to which Saul sank, read chapters 21 through 23 this afternoon. And you'll see that jealousy is a destructive path. And your jealousy may not culminate in murder, as Saul's attempts to do. 
but an unchecked and unrepented jealousy will set you against the living God. And friends, that is not a place where you want to be. And that's what our text this morning shows us. It shows us a man who has set himself against the living God and yet encounters a surprising mercy. So our passage this morning is 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 22. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I have cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. 
For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. You know, as our passage begins with Saul returning from following the Philistines, right? Saul had previously been in pursuit of David and was even closing in on him, but was called back home to do what the king is supposed to do, to defend his people. We see that Saul's jealousy diverted him from his responsibilities. He abandoned the, the interest and the welfare of the people to go after his own self-interest. You know, at the beginning of, of Saul's reign, we read in chapter 13 that he took 3,000 men to go battle the Philistines. And now overcome with jealousy, Saul takes 3,000 men to pursue the man that God has anointed to be the next king. A man who poses no threat to his people. You know, from the time that Jonathan and David departed, David was truly one step away from death. Right? People kept revealing to Saul where David was, was hiding. Clearly, Saul had the upper hand militarily. Right? He was willing to put to death anyone who even had the appearance of taking David's side. And so when Saul stumbled into that cave to take care of his business in private, right, it makes perfect sense that, that David's men encouraged him to take advantage of this, this golden opportunity, this opportunity that may not come again. Right, for them, Saul wandering into that cave all on his own was evidence. Right, evidence beyond a, a reasonable doubt that the Lord... That this was the Lord giving Saul over to David. Right? And if you had to make the case for why Saul should continue to live, you would have your work cut out for you. Right? David's men saw this, this open door. But as close as, as David might have come, right, he didn't go through it. Right? And if we're honest, I think David's refusal to kill Saul, it frustrates us. Right? It makes life more complicated, doesn't it? And here's what I mean. If David had killed Saul in that cave, the lesson would be, the simple lesson would be, seize your opportunities. Right? If a door is open, go through it. Right? If you can justify your case, go ahead. If the outcome would be good for you, and even those around you, well, let nothing stop you. Right? David could have killed Saul that day and taken the throne that was promised to him. 
Right? He could have put an end to his, to his hiding out in caves, but he didn't. And what I think we're seeing is a man who refused to place convenience above loyalty and obedience to God. Because contrary to what David's men said, that there, there, there's no record of the Lord telling David that he would have to kill Saul to take his crown. Right? How often are we more concerned about how far we can stretch our freedoms and liberties? Right? When you had a curfew, weren't you always testing how far past that curfew Right? You could arrive home before anyone noticed. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30. But here, David accepts the limits that God has ordained. Right? He didn't reason his way past what God had revealed. Right? He didn't seek to move beyond what God had commanded about murder and about rebelling against an appointed, anointed leader. You see, David's men saw an opportunity for David to put an end to their wandering. David, on the other hand, saw an opportunity to prove his innocence, to prove that he was not, in fact, Saul's enemy, but a faithful servant of the God that they were both to serve. Friends, God never tempts us to sin. But he does present us with opportunities, tests, that we may discover the true condition of our hearts. Right outside the public eye, surrounded by his men, David had the green light. Right? He had all the advantage. But he made an unlikely decision. Right, a decision to put obedience to God above what was convenient, what was enticing, what was, what was popular. What decisions do you make in the dark? Right? What choices do you make when surrounded by people who encourage you to do as you please? Surrounded by people who you know won't hold you accountable. Right? Those are the times when what's truly in our hearts gets revealed to us. Right? And what we see in the, the next set of verses, verses 8 to 15, is that what was in David's heart wasn't some faith in his own strength, but a deep trust and a correct fear in God's perfect judgment. Right? In verses 8 to 11, David, David is establishing his innocence. A king's robe was a symbol of his, of his power and authority. So it may have looked like David was undermining Saul's authority by cutting off a piece of his robe, but that wasn't, that wasn't his ultimate intent. Right? David held up that piece of Saul's robe to establish that there was, there was no wrong, there was no treason in his hands. It was proof that David, despite all of Saul's evil designs, still, he still maintained goodwill towards Saul. And as one commentator asked, he said, do we, as Christians, 
have that kind of proof that we seek the good of all people, even our possible enemies? Is there evidence in your life that you return good for evil? Or are we content to love those who love us? The standard that God calls us to is one in which we reflect the love of benevolent grace. We follow the God whose reign falls on both the good and the wicked. And one of the more surprising qualifications Paul gives for leadership in the church is that the potential elder must be well thought of by outsiders. Our reputation in the public square matters. Does innocence characterize your life? Is it obvious you are led by something different than what's convenient or popular at the moment? In public, in public, do we commend the truth of the gospel that we profess? You might ask someone close to you to give you an honest answer. No, we need that kind of counsel, don't we? We need the type of friends who care about how we're living and how we're presenting Christ to our communities. Now, notice David's ability to restrain from doing evil. You know, it doesn't flow out of his inherently superior character. Right? It's not as if David, by his nature, was just a better guy than the rest of us. Right? David kept his hand from doing evil because he trusted God's perfect justice. Look at verse 12 again. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And in verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So what's the difference between Saul and David? Well, one man, because of his jealousy, is totally blind to the reality that his actions, his decisions will be subject to the judgment of God. Well, the other man carefully weighs his next step before the Lord who sees all and who will judge. Now, friends, you can let go of the instinct for revenge because God will right all wrongs. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, and Paul quotes a verse out of Deuteronomy, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You see, a large view of the judgment of God frees you from an insatiable desire for revenge and makes you more sensitive to your own obedience. Calling upon the Lord to judge, as David does here, necessarily means that we are going to be more vigilant and careful in how we are living. Where do we see that kind of trust 
Jesus' final prayer as as he hung on the cross, struggling for every breath, his final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Right, the righteous one suffered unjustly, but he didn't strike out against his persecutors. Instead, as, as, as Peter recounts for us in his first letter, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Are we more committed to getting revenge? Maybe to getting in the last word than we are to the Father? Do we trust our sense of justice more than his? What might it look like for you to trust the Lord to judge? How might that trust allow you to pursue peace? Maybe walk more carefully with the Lord. Now don't mishear me. This isn't isn't about calling evil good. David wasn't saying to Saul, no, you do you, Saul. David knew that opposition to God, the persistent pursuit of evil, would not triumph. Jesus' trust was that his father would overturn Pilate's verdict. And that is exactly what happened three days later. The resurrection was God the Father showing the world that God the Son was truly innocent. The only man to ever be totally free of any wrongdoing. And by faith in Christ, his resurrection from the dead is our vindication in the only court that ultimately matters. We do not have a vindication by nature because by our nature, we are not innocent. But we do have a vindication that comes by grace. Because God is just, his innocent son could not eternally suffer for sins that he did not commit. And because God is just, he will not declare guilty those who put their faith in his son. Our sins, and I mean all of them, have been paid for by the blood of Christ. So a just God will not demand a second payment from your hands. Do you care about God's verdict of you? How would God assess your life? Do you have a confidence that God would look upon your life and say not guilty? Apart from Christ, outside of him, you and I don't have that confidence. But by virtue of our faith in him, we can be confident. We can walk in the assurance that we have died to sin, both its, 
its power and its penalty. And that even right now and forever, we are righteous in God's court. Now, beginning in verse 16, we now hear from Saul. It's obvious he was moved by David's speech. He recognized in that moment that what he was doing by pursuing David was illogical. In verse 20, Saul confesses that David will, will surely be king. But as the rest of 1 Samuel narrates, Saul never turned back from his jealous ways. To the very end, Saul pursued himself in defiance of God. Isn't it true that we've known the right thing to do? We've even been able to articulate it, acknowledge it, and yet we failed to do it. That's Saul. He acknowledges what ought to be done, but he can't. He can't give up his personal quest. And we're told in chapter 31, as Saul and his men were surrounded by the Philistines in battle, Saul took his own life by falling on his sword. And then just like Goliath, who stood in that valley defying the living God, Saul was beheaded. We're told that when the Philistines came upon Saul, they they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land to the Philistines to carry the good news to the houses of their idols and to the people. The very Philistines Saul was called to defeat. They're the ones who end up carrying out God's justice, God's judgment against this defiant king. Friends, what we see in Saul is the lesson that God will not agree with our choices to ignore him, to continue in sin and pursue ourselves. So the question is, could it have been different for Saul? Can it be different from, uh, for us? Look at verse 19. I think Saul asked this wonderful question. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? You can just sense the the shock and bewilderment of Saul. He couldn't understand. How how could David let him go? Common sense would tell you that when you find your enemy, you you crush him. That's how the world works. It's too dangerous to let your enemy go free. Right? And for Saul, it, just, it seems that David letting him go, it was just too good to be true. Right? It was so unlike anything that Saul would have done that he doesn't trust it. And I think that's why at the end of the passage, we, we don't see David, we don't see Saul moving toward David. We see Saul turning his back on him and returning home. Because how could someone let their enemy go away safe? 
My friends, there's even better news. There is something even greater than David letting Saul go away. Go away safe. Because when Jesus came, this promised son of David, this one died for his enemies. He died for unrighteous people like us so that we may have a safe passage to come to God. Our hope isn't in receiving justice. That's what Saul received. Our hope is the surprising mercy of Jesus Christ who stood in our place, bearing our sins on his body so that we could be counted free. You know, in a fallen world that is so cruel, cruelty that has been made all the more real to us in the past couple weeks, in this fallen world, we struggle to believe that there could be such a mercy. Right? We know the cruelty. We know the cruelty that we've shown to others. And so we struggle to believe that there could be a mercy for like, there could be a mercy for us. Right? We know that we failed to do the right thing when it was so clear to us. We know how we've ignored God. Maybe for years and years and years, decades, to pursue ourselves. So we doubt that the God that we've defied, maybe even the God that we've mocked, would extend such a thing to us. But that's what makes the gospel so great, so stunning. It's not from this world, right? The gospel overwhelms us in mercy. It shows us that we can't exhaust God's mercy or bring him some sin or, or some sorrow that his mercy can't wash away. The Bible tells us that God is rich in mercy. You are not going to bankrupt God. You are not going to impoverish him of his mercy. The good news is that we don't have to fall on our own swords because Jesus was pierced for us. Right? Like Saul, we can, we can turn back to our own, our self-interests. We can turn our backs. We can walk away in disbelief, doubting that this mercy is real. Or we can come, laying down our arms to receive by faith this surprising, this life-altering, this never-ceasing mercy of Jesus. Let us pray. Lord God, we just ask that by your power and grace, you would just take these truths and you would seal them in our hearts. As we come to the table in just a little bit, we ask that that would be an experience 
where we get to taste your mercy and be convinced that it is true and that it, it is for us. In your son's name we pray, amen.